Father, you are really, really, really good. Lord, we thank you um, that we get to gather together as your daughters and your sons. Lord, we get to lift up our voices to the praise of your name. We get to look at the scriptures, hear them read. Lord, um, see them on the screen, hold them in our hands and laps. And that there is this helper, the Holy Spirit, that dwells within us. The greatest gift. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us now. Open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes and our ears. Lord, that we might be like those disciples on the road to Emmaus. That we might marvel and wonder and be changed because of what you have done in your presence. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come now, fill us afresh in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about the reliability of the Bible. I began with trust falls, we talked about the chair illustration, and then we went straight to the heart, particularly the depravity of our own hearts. We said that if we cannot trust that deepest part of us, then how can we trust ourselves as it comes to the working out of religion? The own estimation of our spirituality, how all that stuff works together. We said it's not a good bet. We must find an outside trustworthy and reliable source of objective truth. We talked about the incredible manuscript evidence that we have in the New Testament for it being the most reliable and trustworthy ancient document ever, like by miles. And because it's trustworthy, because it's reliable, we should then do what it says. A few weeks ago, what we were asking, the question was before us, can we trust that document? Can we trust the Bible? We have a different trust question today. Can I trust that the early church got it right? That their interpretation of that trustworthy document is right? It's one thing to say that the source is trustworthy. It's another thing to ensure that it's been interpreted correctly. That's what we're talking about this morning. As we've seen in the last 2,000 years of church history, correct interpretation is the difference between orthodoxy and absolute heresy. The document is sure. Okay, we have all the evidence we need there. But how do we interpret it correctly? We'll come back to this in a minute. Um, we're in the fourth section of our seven-part series, uh, which, by the way, if you've been here only like five or six weeks, please know that we go through the Bible normally, like verse by verse through whole books. Um, but this is the first time, as you heard during announcement, this is the first time that we have had uh, membership in earnest at our church. We're having our first uh, elections today. And so one of the things that the leadership team put before the church was 
this community covenant. And we put these seven things down as saying, hey, this is who we are at Grace. If you want to follow us as members, these are the things that you need to affirm and adhere to. And so we thought we would take seven weeks and meet those things out. So here we are. We're finishing up the faith portion. I affirm the Nicene and the Apostles' creeds as accurate summaries of the faith handed down. Today, we're looking at the creeds. As you know, I love a good acronym every now and then, and today's is quite the doozy. You ready for it? Aka! Aka! So, look, huge stretch. I know, it makes no sense. But in the least, it's a roadmap for us as we go through this uh, point in our community covenant. Affirm. To affirm something is to confirm or maintain it as true, and and its antonym is to deny. If you affirm or maintain as true that prego is the superior spaghetti sauce, then you are also denying that ragu holds that position. If you affirm or accept that The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is in fact the second book in the Narnia series, then you categorically reject the silly notion that it is to be read first. Trigger warning, here we go. If you affirm that In-N-Out is the best hamburger, then you are necessarily rejecting that Whataburger holds that spot. If you affirm that the Oxford comma is superfluous, you are thereby denying the existence of proper order and you hate puppies. (laughs) You see where this goes, right? To affirm something means you categorically deny the opposite. Historic Orthodox theology affirms that God is one, and then it rejects the pantheon of gods of the Greeks, the Romans, and the Hindus. Trinitarian theology affirms that, yes, God is one, but in yet three distinct persons, and thereby it rejects any sort of modalism that would state God the Father was the Father and the kind of mean one in the Old Testament, then he shows up as Jesus in the new, and now we've got the Holy Spirit, but the same. Christ-centered theology affirms that there is only one mediator between God and man, and only one way by which we are saved, and thereby it rejects the notion, the belief that we can do enough on our own to earn God's favor. Affirmation or acceptance of something necessarily then rejects other things. A few weeks ago, do you remember the C.S. Lewis quote? Either this man, speaking of Jesus, was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that door open to us, nor did he intend to. So if we affirm that Jesus Christ was just a great teacher and moral philosopher, then we are thereby rejecting that he is God. 
That's the state of the day that we live in. A lot of people will affirm a lot of things about Jesus. But if you don't affirm the right things, you are rejecting who he really is. I've beaten the proverbial horse on this point, so let's move on. The creeds. I affirm, I accept the Nicene and Apostles' Creed, but the question before us, what is a creed? The greatest rock and roll band from the 90s, duh. (laughs) Prove me wrong. You've got no appeal on the docket today. It's a little creed reference, dad jokes in the pulpit. It's fine. That's right, I'm 42, okay? That was college. Dang. Okay. So I want to take us to a higher <laughs> definition of the creed. And I stand here with arms wide open, okay? All right, so here's what a creed actually is. It's a summary statement. It's a declarative statement. It distills a bunch of things into something smaller. It comes from the Latin, which is credo, which means I believe And the creeds are rooted in theology, in the scripture, and in history. Christianity has always been creedal because it's always been rooted in theology. It follows the Jewish way. There are assertions in Christianity uh, that Christianity makes, and the creeds distill these, like I said earlier, into these succinct summary statements for us. Sometimes there are a few paragraphs, depending on which creed. Sometimes there are a few pages long. This follows the Old Testament tradition where Israel was unified by these short summary statements like the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. A very short statement pregnant with meaning, with a deep theology, right? This succinct, short statement. The creeds that come after the birth of the New Testament church are just like this, these distilled statements packed with juicy morsels of theology. So, rooted in theology, they're also rooted in Scripture. One of the things that we see in the New Testament is we see these proto-creeds that are kind of coming online in a few places. 1 Corinthians 8, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. There is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Seven chapters later, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. That's what Jesus was talking about. How, How could you not see it? This was foretold in the scriptures. According to the scriptures, all these things must be true as it comes to the Messiah. So these creeds that we have, we start to see them popping up throughout the New Testament. The last one, which I think is uh, maybe a little closer to what we see in the first uh, New Testament church creeds. 
Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Lots of meaning there. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So we see these pre-creeds coming online where Paul and Peter, they're starting to distill Christology and soteriology and a few other ologies for us. But it's not until the canon is closed, it's not until the New Testament church starts to put these things on paper, right, that we start to see the creeds that we're talking about today. So they're rooted in theology, they're rooted in the scripture, they're also rooted in history. Really important point here. Meaning that they were compiled at particular moments in history. Many times the creeds were recorded to combat a particular heresy that had crept up at the time. For instance, the Nicene Creed was formulated to combat the dangerous theology of a man named Arius. He was a priest in Alexandria, very smart, very well known, his interpretation of the trustworthy scriptures led him to believe that God the Father and the Son of God did not always exist together. That somewhere along the way, God the Father created the Son. some point in history, and this is a bit of the weeds, but it's around this term, usia, which means substance or essence. Was Jesus of the same substance? Was his DNA the same as God the Father? It's really important to get that right. When the Nicene Creed affirms Jesus' divinity and his deity, it thereby rejects Arian theology. It affirms and then it denies. Arius' problem wasn't that he was dense. He was brilliant. It was his interpretation that wasn't accurate. He failed to keep the whole of Scripture together. In our hein halagas, kai halagas hein prasthan theon, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, so Arius reads John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. We could spend some time on that begotten part. And he looks at some other scriptures, he's like, man, Father, Son... It makes sense to us. There has to be some creation here. What he didn't do was keep those three chapters in tension, right? He failed to keep the meta narrative of Scripture together. John 1 1 is another proto creed, if you will. 
So they're rooted in theology and scripture and in history. And the Nicene Creed in particular was seeking to correct this heretical teaching around Christ's nature. And it was giving a summary statement that was accurate on who Christ is, which brings us to our third piece, accurate summaries. I affirm the Nicene and Apostles' Creeds as accurate summaries. I heard this week, uh, I think it was your mentor, maybe, uh, I heard a quote, discernment is less about distinguishing between right and wrong and more about distinguishing between right and almost right. You believe that God is one? Good. The demons know that. The demons know that God is one. It's not enough to believe most of the truth about God. Um, One of the early church fathers was a guy named Tertullian, and he was writing writing against this guy named uh, Praxeus because he had some errant theology um, in the way of Arianism, sort of. Uh, here's, here's, or sorry, modalism. Here's what he says around 200 AD. In various ways has the devil reviled truth. Sometimes his aim has been to destroy it by defending it. The devil knows who God is. He maintains that there is only one Lord, the almighty creator of the world, that of this doctrine of the unity he may fabricate a heresy. He says that the Father himself came down into the virgin, was himself born of her, himself suffered, indeed was himself Jesus Christ. You can kind of see it, right? Makes some sense. Modalism makes sense in a lot of ways on the surface. But there is a right way to interpret the trustworthy scriptures. God is Trinity. We see that throughout the meta narrative. When we keep all 66 books in tension, we see it that way. So accuracy is important when we think of and talk about God. Um, this goes against sort of my DTS upbringing, this next statement. But what I want to say is that yes, we can and should put our trust in the scripture. True, that is true, 100,000% true. But it is also true that we can take things out of context and hyper-focus on them. The creed helps us as with like the keys to the meta-narrative, right? It, it helps us keep all the essential things in context. This is what Arius failed to do. The creed synthesized for us who God is, what he has done to bring about salvation They're accurate summaries. We're almost done. Um, I realize this is seemingly dry, okay? This is not preaching, this is teaching. We're talking about the history of the church. I want y'all to hear this one, this last piece, handed down. Being a creedal people helps us lean into humility and away from hubris. We... Texan, American, 21st century people like to think that we are really, really, really smart. 
We also think we would do it a lot better than those that came before us. Very angsty 2007 Brit wrote this in his church history notes. What, in, what is happening in my life is not unique. The Holy Spirit has been illumining people for centuries. He wasn't waiting for our generation, our country, our music, our time. It's been the Holy Spirit all along, and he's been doing it ever since Pentecost. Get over yourself, generation. I have no idea why I was so upset with my generation. <laughs> in 2007, probably listening to a bunch of like emo core music, uh, but it's true. For 2,000 years, God has been at work, and listen up. He chose to entrust the foundational theology of our religion to other people. Not you, not me. Dang. That is not the American way. Like, it, it does not bode well for our egos. Like, we, we came up with the internet, y'all. And social media. We are the brightest. We've done the most. Humanity has advanced, advanced the most under our watch. Right? We're going to get up there. Heaven, I'm talking about. Uh, what, what did you guys contribute to humanity? Well, man, we came up with this cool thing uh, where we get our cues and our self-esteem from this like little heart thing and this thumbs up. And if enough people click on those two buttons, then we feel really good about ourselves. Right? It's really good for our egos to lean into the fact that we did not figure this out. It's been around for a very, very long time. So being creedal people helps us be humble. Right? But being a creedal people also helps us by giving the church universal a framework for the core tenets of our faith. Things like the virgin birth, the divinity and the bodily resurrection of Christ, those things are essential. If you pluck one of those out, you are not a Christian, right? You take one of those things out, the whole thing falls. Those central tenets are common to all orthodox denominations. But we are a splitting people. We split over the color of pews and carpet and music style. When Jesus will return and how that eschaton will play out. But those things are non-essential. They are not essential. The apostles didn't think so. And neither did the first 300 years of Christianity. So as creedal people, we hold on to the central points of theology found in the early creeds as absolutely necessary. Debates around Calvinism, Arminianism, the end times is superfluous. Have your opinion, but it's non-essential to Christianity. The orthodox, accurate faith has been handed down to us, beginning with the apostles. Paul hands it to Timothy. Then Timothy entrusts it to faithful men who then entrust it to more faithful men. In a few generations, we get to 
some of the church fathers like Ignatius in 107. It's passed along to Justin Martyr in 165, then Tertullian, 200, Hippolytus in 215, Nicaea, Marcellus in 340, the 150 bishops at Constantinople in 381, the bishops that gather in Chalcedon in 451, the Council of Orange in 829, second Constantinople in 553, and third in 681. Then it's passed along to the Textus Receptus in 700. Then we make a big jump to the German Augsburg Confession of 1530. Then the English 39 Articles in 1563. And then the Lausanne Covenant in 1974. This thing has been handed down over the centuries. The historic Orthodox faith can be trusted. For 2,000 years, she has been defending it, the church. What we preach, the theology that we espouse, can be trusted because it comes with this great cloud of witnesses that testify to its accuracy. Alistair McGrath uh, said this, speaking of church history. Studying church history is like being at a Bible study with a great company of people who thought about those questions that were bothering you and others. There have been thousands and thousands of people that have thought about the questions that bother you. And we have a succinct, accurate summary of the faith that was handed down to us in the early creeds. Um, Since we're barely Anglican around here, um, you may not know that the norm in an Anglican order of worship would be that after the sermon happens, the Nicene Creed would be recited by the whole congregation. The reason for that is if the preacher goes off, if he leans out of orthodoxy, if he leans away from the scripture then the whole congregation at least gets to remember the orthodox faith that was handed down to them. It's an accurate summary of the faith. So this morning, I want to invite us. I'd love for us to stand, actually, as we remember the accurate orthodox faith that's grounded in theology, in the scriptures, and in history that which was handed down starting with the apostles and that we are the lucky recipients of 2,000 years later.